Hallelujah. Amen. And today we are uh, going to look at our passage for this week, which is Acts chapter number two. And uh, if you have your reading, you can pull that out or you can uh, uh, follow along in your Bibles. But we're going to do a little uh, study of this passage. Obviously, this is something we could study this passage for weeks and weeks. So uh, we're going to quickly look at uh, some important things from the book of Acts chapter number two. First of all, I want to say that the book of Acts is a history of the beginning of the church. And it was written by Luke. And you could tell that it was written by Luke because he uses a lot of the same language. And he also starts out Luke by talking about this man, Theophilus. And then he says, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, which he's talking about the book of Luke. So the book of Luke told the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And then Acts takes up after Jesus ascends or right about the time Jesus ascends and tells the story of the church in its beginning. And it's interesting that the book of Acts has no formal closing. Whereas most books of the Bible have a formal closing, especially the epistles of Paul, he will write a closing remark. The book of Acts just stops right in the middle of a great story as the story comes to an end, letting us know that the acts of the apostles are still happening today. Because if you wanted to rightly name this passage, it wouldn't be the acts of the apostles, it would be the acts of the believers empowered by the Holy Spirit and what they were able to do through the power of the Holy Ghost. So we are Acts chapter 29 here in 2016, adding new chapters and new stories. Every time I hear a story of a miracle, that happens overseas or somebody here in the United States that's delivered or a church that started or a, a powerful move of God where God opens a door to provide a building or uh, uh, some provision for the church. I said, that's the book of Acts still in action because wherever the Holy Ghost is, good things are going to happen. Can I get an amen? Praise God. And someone said that uh, you can't change the world. You can't move the world by con condemning the world, or by conforming to the world. You cannot move the world by condemnation or conformity, only by combustion. That's fire. And when the church is on fire with the Holy Ghost, it can change the world. We can't condemn the world or conform to the world to make a difference. We have to be on fire by the Spirit to be able to make a difference. Amen? When you look at the early church that we read about in Acts chapters 1 through 28, you see a church that has none of the things that we think are so essential for success today. The church in the book of Acts didn't have a building. They didn't have any money. They didn't have political influence. They didn't have social status. However, this church won multitudes and multitudes to Jesus Christ and planted churches all throughout the Roman Empire. How did they do it? How did they do it? They didn't have anything that they would need, but they had one thing, and that is the power of the Holy Ghost was energizing their ministry. I want to tell you today that the Holy Spirit is the difference maker, and when we have the Holy Spirit at work in the church of the living God, there is nothing impossible, and God's objective is going to be done, and if you subtract the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter how much money, political influence, 
beautiful buildings, whatever it is, uh, 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 programs, no, no matter what you have, you're not going to be able to accomplish the mission of Jesus Christ on the earth without the power of the Holy Ghost because he said, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses. How many know that we have to have the power of the Holy Ghost in 2016 in our midst and understand that this is what is going to energize God's purpose in the church? Praise the Lord. And so today, as we look at Acts chapter 2, we notice that there are four experiences of the church that emerge. The first one is in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And what is the church doing? Everybody say, waiting. Waiting. They were in one accord, one place, waiting for the Spirit. And then secondly, from verses 2 to 13, what are they doing? They Once they receive, they are worshiping the Lord. So we see the church worshiping. And then verses 14 through 41 of Acts chapter 2, we see the church witnessing to the lost through the mouthpiece of the apostle Peter. And then the last portion of the chapter, verses 42 through 47, we see the church walking in the Spirit. So they start out waiting for the Spirit, and then they're worshiping the Lord when the Spirit shows up, and then they begin witnessing to the lost, and finally we see the church functioning as it is walking in the Spirit. So we're going to start with Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, where they were waiting. The Bible says uh, in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were waiting. Now, I want to share with you some uh background of the day of Pentecost. I had misrepresented on Sunday, I want to clear up, that Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. In reality, Pentecost is 53 days typically after the Passover. Uh, Let me explain that to you. The Passover was a Jewish feast. If you read Leviticus chapter 23, it talks about the three main feasts of Israel. The feast of the Passover, and then the Feast of the first fruits, and then the Feast of Pentecost. Let me tell you how they would happen. There was a specific date on the calendar that would always be the Passover. And the Passover is a memory or a reminder of when the children of Israel were brought out of bondage and when a lamb was killed in every household to save the firstborn in every household. It was a reminder of this. So the Passover would happen at a certain date. And then the first fruits was a feast that would happen on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. You guys following me? You tracking with me? So let's say the Passover is on a Tuesday this year. When would the uh, first fruits would be? First fruits would be Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the, uh, the day after the Sabbath. The first day after the Sabbath. Okay, so if, uh, if Passover was on Friday, then, then the uh, first fruits would be on Sunday. And then 50 days after the first fruits, which was a celebration of uh, the first part of the harvest, 50 days after would be the Feast of Pentecost. That's where the 50 comes, not 50 after the Passover, but 50 after the uh, uh, festival of first fruits, which was usually three, four, five days after the Passover. So both the first fruits uh, festival 
and the festival of Pentecost in the Hebrew calendars you see in Leviticus 24 always happened on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, directly following the Sabbath. So every year they would have the Passover during the week. And then on that Sunday following the Passover would be the Feast of the First Fruits. And then exactly seven weeks later, on the Sunday, seven weeks after that, 50 days after, they would celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And uh, the, these were the Jewish feasts. And if you look at them, they outlined the work that Jesus Christ was going to do. The first one is the Passover. Jesus Christ became the Passover lamb, right? He was slain on the Jewish Passover. And then on that Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits, and Jesus resurrected from the dead. As the Bible says, he was the first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? There's a lot of us that are going to be raised from the dead, but he was the first one. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And then 50 days after that, on the Feast of Pentecost, this was the commemoration of the giving of the law, was the formation of the church on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of the Lord was poured out. And so that's why every year Easter is on Sunday and Pentecost is on Sunday. And that's why the Christian church immediately began the practice of gathering together on Sunday because that was the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it was also the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out. So in the new church, the Sunday, the first day of the week was seen as the Lord's day. Everybody got that? So resurrection and Pentecost happened on Sunday. So they were waiting, waiting for the Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, when this feast day finally arrived, they were there in one accord in one place. Now, we've always assumed, always believed that it happened in the upper room. Some people, scholars, believe that it actually happened in the temple because chapter 1 definitely says they were in the upper room and there was 120 there. But you switch to chapter 2 and it doesn't necessarily say they were in the same place. But it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Some people believe they were still in the upper room. Others believe maybe they were gathered together at the temple. But what happens is, is they worship the Lord. That's the next step in verses 2 through 13. Verse number 2 says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, there appeared unto them cloven tongues or divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Look, are not all these which speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed 
and perplexed, saying one to another, whatever could this mean? So what happens? In verses 2 and 3, the Spirit arrives. The Holy Ghost shows up. Jesus had promised, I'm going to pour out the Holy Ghost if you'll wait. It's going to happen. And it arrived. It happened in verses 2 and 3. The Holy Ghost showed up, and it was different than the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Old Testament. Not a different spirit, but it's a different experience. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon them, but it doesn't come inside. And in the Old Testament, whenever the anointing would come upon someone, it was temporary. But this was coming in to take up residence. And people were going to become temples or dwelling places of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says there was a sound of wind. I think it's important for you to know this, that the word spirit translated from the Greek is exactly the same as the word wind. The word spirit translated from the Hebrew is exactly the same as the word wind. And when the wind came, they couldn't feel the wind, but the Bible says that they could hear it. And when they heard the sound, all of a sudden there appeared unto them fire, tongues of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire, as John had promised, as the Old Testament had promised, as the gospel had promised, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Amen. And the Bible says in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. They were filled with the Spirit. And when they received the Spirit, they were given power for their lives to be transformed and to be a witness and to do Christian service. Now, um, I want to mention here that uh, when we talk of the Holy Spirit, there's different terms that we use interchangeably. And sometimes they can create confusion for people that come in and aren't familiar with them. We talk about receiving the Holy Ghost. We talk about being baptized with the Holy Ghost. We talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. All of these are interchangeable terms to describe the experience when God's Spirit comes inside of us to dwell. When we've repented of our sins and asked him to come in, and his spirit comes in to dwell with us, that is receiving the Holy Ghost, or being baptized in the Holy Ghost, or being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's all the same experience. And when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, we see the evidence in the book of Acts here is they began to speak in a different language as the Holy Spirit gave them the words to speak. And we see this experience repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts and then referenced in the epistles of this experience of someone receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Is that clear? Now, here's one thing I do want to mention is the Bible talks about us being full of the Holy Ghost or filled with the Holy Ghost. So you could make a distinction between the initial infilling or baptism of the Holy Spirit and being full of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Because the Bible never tells us to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. It says we will be baptized, but God's the one that does the baptizing, right? 
That initial experience comes from God. But once you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's then your responsibility to stay full of the Holy Spirit, all right? So there is a little bit of a difference there. The initial baptism of the Spirit or the initial receiving of the Spirit, being filled, being baptized is the same substance experientially, but it's different in its purpose and application. We must be baptized in the Spirit, but that's a one-time event when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You don't lose it and have to get it over again. I need to be baptized again. No, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. You belong to God now. You've been sealed that you belong to the Lord. I know some people go around and think they're going to lose the Holy Ghost every time they turn around. Every time they, uh, you know, swing a hammer and they hit their fingernail and something comes out of their mouth, oop, the Holy Ghost left, right? I, I lost the Holy Ghost. Well, that's a sign you may not be full of the Holy Ghost, but you've still been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference here because when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you become a part of God's body. But when you are full of the Holy Spirit, your body becomes owned by God. He begins to have access to your physical body. So the baptism of the Spirit, this one-time event, is the seal or, or, or the uh, proof that I belong to the body of Christ, but being full of the Spirit means my body belongs to Him. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is one time and it's final, but the fullness of the Spirit is repeated over and over again as we trust God, as we reach out to Him, as we're uh, refilled over and over and over with the Spirit, to, with power to be a witness. Does that make sense? Amen? So the baptism of the Spirit is one time. Fullness of the Spirit is something we pursue in our lives. Sometimes we're running on empty, ain't we? Right? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys do that. I know I can get 20 more miles out of this tank. The red light's flashing. The little needle is below ground. You know what I'm saying? And you're like, surely I can get, surely I can get home. And then you get home and like, ah, surely I can get back to work one more time. I don't have time to stop at the gas station. That's the way some of us are spiritually. We've been baptized in the Spirit, but we're running on empty. But if you run on empty too long, you won't go no more, more will you? Amen. That's why you got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Ghost. Not half full, not running on empty, not about out, but be full of the Holy Spirit. Come on, give God praise right now. Amen. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And then uh, verses 5 through 13, the Spirit of God begins to speak through them in other languages. They began to praise and give glory to God in different languages. Everybody say, wow. They spoke in languages that they hadn't learned. And the Bible shows us that when uh, people heard the sound or the word got out, that they came. And here's the deal. Um, they, they would take pilgrimages to Jerusalem. This is where it's happening. From all over, all over Mesopotamia for these feasts. So there's people that had come into town to celebrate the feast. Kind of like some people like leave town to follow their football team to the Super Bowl or the Rose Bowl or something like that. So all these people are down there in Old Town Pasadena hanging out waiting for the Rose Bowl. And uh, um, no, not really. They were there for the Feast of Pentecost. And when they hear this, they come around and they speak Aramaic, which is the common language of the day, but they have their language from their home. And they hear all of these people from Galilee that are obviously from Galilee speaking in their languages. How did these people learn my language? 
and they were astounded. They were amazed. They marveled. It goes over and over to use these words that they're like, what is going on here? I can't figure out what is taking place. The spirit was speaking as they spoke in other languages. Why? Why did God choose this sign of the baptism of the spirit? Why would he choose other tongues? I think it's cool to think about this. Do you know that the day of Pentecost was a reversal of the curse of Babel? What happened in Babel? Well, men were in rebellion against God, and they were all of one language, and they were together. They were unified. They were unified in this purpose of rebelling against God, and in their unity, they were successfully building this tower. And it was to oppose God's authority. They didn't have to listen to God. If God ever tries to destroy us from a flood again, we'll just climb the tower. It was a resistance against God's authority. And God came down and confounded their language. It was a curse that caused them to not be able to understand one another and to be divided and to spread all over the world. And guess what happened? Pentecost instead of dividing people, took people that were divided and united them together in spirit. It was a reversal of the division of the curse of Babel. The blessing of Pentecost was no longer is there distinction of races. It is a tearing down of the middle wall of partition. There's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. We're all one in Christ. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what your original language was, but we are all one in Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. You can't be prejudiced and be Pentecostal. You can't be racist and be spirit-filled because the Holy Spirit tore that down and said we're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or what your original language is or what your socioeconomic background is. At Pentecost, come on now, the curse of Babylon was reversed and the wall was torn down. This was the spiritual end of racism and prejudice in the church. How many knows it's tried to rear its head time and again? But the spirit of Pentecost is a spirit of unity. And we talked about in Galatians how the walls were rebuilt by uh, humanity. But God's purpose was to tear it down and that there be one church united around Jesus Christ, regardless of social background, regardless of cultural preferences. It was a church united around Jesus Christ. Now, here's another thing about the speaking in tongues. John chapter 3, you can interpret this verse from uh, John chapter 3. Um, in John 3, there was a man who, who came to Jesus. And uh, in verse 3, well, first of all, he said, I, we can tell that, uh, that you're from God because you're doing all kinds of miracles, and it's impossible for a human being to open blind eyes and uh, um, to, you know, to, to turn, turn water into wine. So we can tell you came from God. Uh, the only way you could do these miracles is God's with you. And then Jesus said to him, listen to me. Listen, listen, buddy. I'm telling you right now, unless a man is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus was confused and he said, how can I be born now that I'm grown up? I can't go back into my mother's womb. How do I be born again? Jesus answered, listen up, listen up, listen, listen, listen. I'm saying unto you, except the man be born of water 
and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the first birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's the new birth. The new birth is a spirit birth, a birth of water and spirit. And he said, verse 7, marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. But I want to draw your attention to verse 8. And then he starts saying something that, you know, Nicodemus is probably like, I think I've checked into the twilight zone. I have no idea what that, I just came to compliment him on his ministry. And here he is being, talking about being born again. And now he says, the wind or the spirit blows where it wishes wherever it wants to go, and you hear the sound. <clears throat> the word sound here is phone, which can be translated sound or voice. You hear the voice of it, but you can't tell where it's coming from <clears throat> and where it's going. Look at this next, after the colon. It says, this is how it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. What is the thing that every new birth experience has in common? The voice of the Spirit, the sound of the Spirit. And so what is the sound? The sound of the Spirit is what we saw in the book of Acts chapter 2. They said, these people are receiving the Holy Ghost too. How do you know? Well, we can't doubt it because we hear them speaking in tongues and magnifying God. There is a voice of the Spirit, and Jesus was teaching John that day, when you are born, when a baby's born, what you listening for, mama? You listening for its voice, because as soon as that cry goes out, you're like, shazam, the baby's living. Come on now. But if the baby stays quiet, you get in, uh, nervous pretty fast. Uh, but when you hear the sound, the cry of the newborn baby, you say there's birth. Uh, and there is a sound. There's a voice. Uh, there's a cry of new birth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And the voice that we see is them speaking in tongues. The Bible talks about the tongue being a, like the rudder of a ship. You know, a ship's massive, and it can be controlled by a small rudder. And that goes with what we were teaching on Sunday. Your tongue is a small member, but it determines your destiny. Doesn't it? It says you're going to eat the fruit of whatever you speak. That means whatever you speak, you're heading towards it. You speak doubt, fear, unbelief, doom, gloom, then watch out. Your life's fixing to get, ooh. But if you're speaking confidence and faith and, and, and the word of God and, and in agreement with what God has to say, you're going that direction. So wouldn't it make sense uh, that the tongue, the most powerful member in terms of your direction, would be the sign that God would use where the voice of the Spirit would come forth? And then also that, the Bible says in James that the tongue is the most difficult member to control. That's what it says, right? Did you all read that? Most difficult member to control. And uh, don't look at anybody. Just keep looking at me right now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've all seen before people who could not control this member. And all of us have been there before. We've all said stupid things. And we're like, why did I speak? And uh, the Bible says it's the most difficult to control. If it says that, then it's true. So that means if my tongue is surrendered to him, and it's the most difficult thing to bring under control. That means everything else is under God's authority. 
It's a sign that my, my, my spirit's been surrendered to him. And out of my mouth, out of my mouth flows uh, the expression of the spirit, the sound of the spirit. Praise God. And not only that, but uh, the, the fact that they were speaking in diverse languages, different languages was a sign that the gospel is not just for one group, but it's for the whole world. They were speaking in different tongues and different dialects. And back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, one chapter before, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, Jerusalem, Judea, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That means all over the place. The gospel, the spirit, was missional from the very beginning. And so the people came. They were perplexed. They, were mar- they marveled. They were amazed. Some were mockers. Others were sincere and wanted to find out what was happening. And uh, I, I think this is cool because... They saw this and they're like, wow. <laughs> Anybody ever been, seen somebody like it's their first time to come to a spirit-filled church and they're used to like a liturgical church and uh, they're like looking at the bulletin and, and something's happening and somebody's up there crying, somebody falls out and they're like, I don't see this in the program anywhere. What's, what's going on here? This is wow, bizarre. And they see somebody's life begin to be changed. That, that's huge. When you see somebody's life begin to be changed, that that was a mean and and uh, out of control and selfish, uh, and you see the spirit begin to transform them, and and they're like, "What is going on in your?" I got to find out about this. But I see people that come to the house of the Lord, their eyes are as big as saucers, and they get out as quick as they can because they don't want anything to do with it. Uh, but there's others that say, "Hey, there's something here. I need to find out about this." Uh, I believe God lets you get a little taste uh, to see if you're interested or not. Uh, just like when Moses saw the burn bush. It was burning, but it was supernaturally not being consumed. It was on fire, but it didn't burn up. He said, I'm going to turn aside and check this out. There's something different here. There's something powerful here. There's something unique and divine here. I'm going to check it out. And when Moses turned aside, then God began to speak. And I believe God let some people come into the, uh, uh, into the arena of his presence, and they're going to decide whether this is something I need to investigate or not. The mockers said, hey, these people are drunk. They look drunk. Why? Because they were joyfully, expressively worshiping God, speaking in tongues. Anybody ever seen somebody get drunk in the spirit before? And some of you new folks around here, you had not seen it yet. It's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty cool. I, I've, we've uh, uh, taken kids before, young people, and had them in an altar service where they were just praying and loving Jesus. And it went from minutes to an hour. And they're weeping and speaking in tongues. And it comes time to, hey, we got to head to in and out. They fit the clothes. And, and we try to pick up the kids, and, and they're like staggering around, and they try to speak, and they can barely speak in English. That's beautiful and a powerful experience. And I just kind of believe that's what was happening that day. These people had experienced the Holy Spirit for the first time, and it tasted so good. And they were just enjoying praising and worshiping and loving Jesus uh, until they were just lost in the Holy Ghost. Uh, I'm telling you, if you never been there before, it's some place you need to go. Amen. Hallelujah. It's some place you need to go and something you need to experience. I remember times when I've come up to the front just to pray for a minute and all of a sudden the power of God came on me so strong I couldn't even stand on my feet and I crumpled to the ground as the spirit of the Lord just did a work in me and all the things I was anxious about just washed out of my spirit. All the things I was fearful about just washed out of my spirit. I want to tell you again today that the Holy Ghost is just as powerful today as it's ever been. And it's good for what ails you. It's the power of the Holy Ghost. 
And I don't think it's a coincidence that they said, well, these people must be drunk because wine is associated with the Spirit in Scripture. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians uh, contrasts being drunk with wine versus being filled with the Spirit. He says, don't be drunk with wine. It may make you feel good for a while, but you're going to have regrets tomorrow. You're going to make some bad choices. I'm going to tell you, you get drunk on the Holy Ghost, you ain't making bad choices. And you're not going to have a hangover tomorrow. I like the Holy Ghost hangover. I wake up with joy. I wake up feeling like, man, what happened to me? That was good. Praise God. I feel hope for tomorrow. I feel hope for this week. Now, there's a lot of people that wake up after a bender, and they're like, oh, my God, what did I do last night? And uh, they go out, and they, uh, there's an accident on their car. They don't even know what happened. There's regrets. And there's some deep, dark regrets regrets that come from being drunk with wine. That's why the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit because it's got the same joy. Hallelujah. It's got the same peace. Uh, It brings the same chill, but it doesn't bring, amen, the hangover or the regrets. I'm thankful for the Holy Ghost and fire. Number three, the apostle Peter began and the church began witnessing to the lost. Now, I don't have time to go into this. I've run out of time. Um, uh, but I got a lot of good notes here. It'd be great if you guys could see it. It's really awesome stuff. <laughs> Let me just uh, breeze over it quickly. Peter says, hey, guys, you guys heard the story of Jesus, right? Everybody there had heard about it because the crucifixion and trial of Jesus was front page material. You guys heard about the guy that claimed to be the Messiah named Jesus of Nazareth? You, you remember him, right? You know uh, that uh, this Jesus rose from the dead. And of course, it had been reported that, you know, the apostles came and stole his body and claimed that he was raised from the dead. And uh, the, the, the people are saying, what, what meaneth this? What's going on? And Peter says, hey, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And here's the four proofs. Number one, you remember Jesus. You remember the miracles he did? The crowd's like, yeah. Did you ever eat of the, the, the bread and the fish? Well, there was a few there. I was there that day. I saw that fish just multiplying in his hands. Anybody here who had a family member or a friend that was healed in one of Jesus' uh, ministry crusades? And they're all like, yeah. Uh, there's other people nodding their head. You remember Jesus. He was a man approved among you by signs and wonders and miracles. This thing wasn't done in a corner. Y'all heard about it. You've seen it. Many of your families were impacted by it. Jesus Christ was a real person. Do you think that this miracle worker would be somebody that could be defeated by death? Think about it now. Think about it now. The guy that healed and opened blind and brought Lazarus out of the grave. You think death's going to hold this guy? And then he goes to the prophecy of David. He starts talking here about the prophecy of David. And when he says, David said, I would not suffer my holy one to see corruption. He said, David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Holy One, the Messiah. David said, this guy is not going to be eaten up by worms. He's not going to stay in the grave, but he's coming out of the grave. Remember the prophecy of David? This is the Messiah. Remember the prophecy of David. And then he said, what about the witness of the believers? Think about the believers. He appeared to us. And, And they may think, well, how reliable are you guys as witnesses? You're propagating this message. Listen, these were not people who came up with a plan. They didn't anticipate the resurrection. They were shocked when they saw Jesus. There was no motive for them to propagate a lie. 
That, when they propagated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it led to opposition and imprisonment and death. It, it was not anything that they were motivated to do, but they had to tell it because it was the truth. They saw it. They saw Jesus. He appeared to over 500 at one time. And then the final point that Peter says is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Jesus had promised to send the Spirit. And if he was dead, he couldn't have sent it. You see it happening right now. All this that was prophesied by Joel is happening right now. This is proof that Jesus is alive. And here's the conclusion, y'all. It's a declaration and an accusation. Jesus was your Messiah and you killed him. The Messiah you've been waiting for every year, leaving a set extra chair at the Passover at your house when you ate the lamb. He showed up. He approved himself with miracles. Uh, he did no evil. He, he was pure, and he's poured out his spirit right here. And look at you guys. Look at you now. You miss your Messiah. Not only did you miss him, but you had him crucified. And they're all like, oops. And then he tells them why it happened, verses 36 through 41. It says it was to save sinners. Amen. And the message convicted their hearts. And they asked the disciples, not just Peter, but they asked all of them, men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter told them how to be saved, Acts 2 and 38. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and your children, to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter gave them the answer of how to be saved. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the gospel message, and you got to repent which is to die with Jesus. you got to be baptized, which the Bible says is to be buried with Jesus. Uh, and you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, uh, which is to be risen with Jesus. Uh, and this promise is for everybody. Amen. Amen. Repenting, being crucified with Jesus. The Bible teaches that when you're baptized in water in the name of Jesus, that it is for the remission of your sins. Your sins are washed away. Your old nature is cut off and buried in the waters of baptism. It's the Bible calls it the circumcision of the heart. Uh, your sins are remitted. Another place it says your sins are washed away. Uh, uh, some people say, well, baptism is just a confession of what already happened. No, the Bible says that when you are baptized, uh, you're buried with him. The old nature is buried with Jesus. Christ. Uh, and that's why the apostle Peter, some people say, well, you don't need to be baptized. Why did Peter say it then? Amen. Why did Jesus say it? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Why did they say it if it wasn't essential? That's revisionist doctrine. The Bible says very clearly, what do we do? We're guilty. We messed up. We're pricked in our heart. We feel conviction. Peter said, repent. Give your life to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness. Be baptized in the name of Jesus so that your sins be washed away by faith and through the power of the name of Jesus. And you will receive the gift of the the Holy Ghost. Somebody say, it's a gift. You don't earn this. You receive this. Praise the Lord. Amen. And many were added to the church and they walked in the spirit. They met in the temple for assembly and ministry. They also met in homes because that day there were 3,000 new converts and those converts needed instruction in the word and they needed fellowship 
with God's people. They broke bread from house to house. They fellowship. What did that mean? They ate together and they were together. Everybody say together. Church members are supposed to be together. That's how the church started. We don't come together on Sunday and then go live our life the rest of the week and then come back together on Sunday. The Bible says they were together. Together. And it wasn't enough for them to come to church once a week. They were in prayers daily. They were in fellowship daily. People were added to the church daily, such as should be saved. They were on fire for God because they were baptized in the Spirit. And they said, there's 3,000 new believers. We got to get them discipled. We got to turn them in to followers of Jesus Christ because they don't know the Scriptures. They don't understand. They need to hang out with us. And the more you hang with the apostles, the more you're going to be like the apostles. And I want to tell you that the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me in prayer on Monday while we were gathered here together with the men. And I'm wrapping this up right now. Bring it to a close. Uh, este momento. That's probably not even right, is it, brother? Brother Ulysses has a laugh that he lets out every time I try to speak in Spanish. And it's more, and it's kind of that laugh that says, uh, like, these, uh, uh, these men are full of new wine. It's kind of the mocker laugh, you know what I'm saying? Just playing. Um, so, what was I saying? Here's what the Lord spoke to me in prayer. I, I felt this impression. I shared it with the men on, on uh, Monday is that this is what God wants to do to Life Church? is he wants to turn us into a group or a congregation of people who are physically addicted to discipleship. Physically addicted to discipleship. Daily, they were adding to the church. Daily they fellowship. Daily they broke bread from house to house. Not because they didn't like their families, but because they realized, hallelujah, that there was something powerful when they came together. And they're like, here's some new people. I need to spend some time with those people. There's some new people that can help change the world and fulfill Jesus' message that he left us. I need to spend some time with them. I need to teach them the word. I need to hang out. We need to laugh. We need to have a good time and do life together. And there's something that the, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me that the, that's come over me. There, there's a, a scripture it says this, uh, uh, let me pull it up here. It says that uh, there was a particular group of people uh, in the household of Stephanus. Oh, come on now, move. Can't get, oh, escape button. That'll do it. Escape. There we go. It says, <clears throat> I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruit of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They addicted themselves. That's the only time I see the word addiction in the Bible. It says, hey, these people are to be commended. They They got to where they needed a fix every day. They needed a fix every day. And there's something the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. If, if our church will get addicted to discipleship, if we as the members, this is not something a pastor can do. This is not something that a leadership staff can do. But this is something that's got to work its way into the body of Christ. Because we're all members of the body, and all of us have called to make, to make disciples. If you are a disciple, you're supposed to be making disciples. You can't be a guppy if you ain't making guppies. Come on now. You can't be a disciple if you're not making disciples. So there's got to be something that gets a hold of you that's not like, I'm going to help somebody grow in, 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 in Jesus if somebody comes along. That was my old attitude. I'm going to confess to you right now. Even when I was a pastor, it was like I love sowing into people. I love teaching Bible studies. I love spending time with new folks. But if, 
you know, if there's nobody there, if I go two or three weeks without it, that's all right. When I get the chance, I'll do it again because it's good and, and it's not that bad and I enjoy it. But there's something got a hold of me. If I go a day or two without being able to sow and pour into the life of a new believer and mentor somebody that's growing and spend some time with some new believers, and guess what? Uh, I, I start getting itchy and fidgety. And, and uh, uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm like, I got to get a fix. Uh, and the Lord said, come on, Life Church. It's time for us to get addicted to the ministry of the saints. You don't have to have a Bible college degree. You don't have to have a role in the church or a title. There just has to be something that gets a hold of you that says, I see some new people that have just been added to the church. Hey, 3,000 people added to the church. Somebody better take some activity and spend some time with these new believers and teach them about the things of God. And you watch out, Monrovia. You watch out, San Gabriel Valley. When you get a church full of people that don't abdicate discipleship to a handful, but realize, I've got to addict myself. I've got to develop an appetite. I've got to develop an addiction to ministering to the body of Christ because of what Jesus has done for me. Let's stand together right now. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. Praise God. I know how the devil works. I know how the devil works. Well, I'm not qualified to make disciples. Dude, do you know how to turn on a grill? Seriously, you know how to turn on a grill? Mama, do you know how to throw together some spaghetti? Do you? Do, do you know? Come on now. Do you know how to make some mac and cheese? That's the second sermon I've mentioned, mac and cheese. <laughs> you know how to throw up some fried okra? Hey, you can make disciples. You know why? Because they broke bread from house to house. Sometimes all you got to do is open up your house and be loving. And you show Jesus to somebody. Praise God. What happens when all the church gets addicted ha, to winning souls, to reaching new people? And then when somebody prays through, they're like, hey, you're mine. We're going to spend some time together. We're going to go grab some coffee. Hallelujah. Hey, have you ever been through Search for Truth? I'd like to do a Bible study. I'm not very good, but I'm going to learn on you. Will you be my guinea pig? Come on, somebody. I'm talking about something that gets a hold of the body of Christ. Watch out, Monrovia. Watch out, St. Gabriel Valley. When there's a church that's addicted to what the apostles and the disciples did, the ministry of the saints. I'm going to pray for it right now. Lift up, specifically, if you want to be the first fruits of this, it's gotten a hold of me. It's gotten a hold of my wife. There are other people that are feeling it. There are other people that are practicing and getting involved with whatever skills they got, with whatever ability they got, whether it's turning on a grill or flipping a burger. They're like, I want to be a part of this. If you want to be part of the first fruits, lift up your hands right now. Lift up your hands really high because I'm going to pray, hallelujah, that an addiction would get a hold of you to the point of you got to be part of this you got to be involved in this. you got to find somebody you can pour into and minister to. In the name of Jesus, I pray for a fresh baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. Hallelujah. The Holy Ghost and fire. It'll do to us, Lord God, what it did to the 120, what it did to the 3,000, so that the church was expanding daily. Hallelujah. Let us break bread from house to house. Let us continue in the doctrine of the apostles. Let us, Lord God, move forward into your purpose in Jesus name hashataya come on let the holy ghost gift flow right now randa i feel faith in this house hallelujah i feel the power of the holy ghost moving here right now hallelujah